As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. After seven consecutive League R titles in the early 2000s, We'd forgive you for thinking Leon are still firmly a part of European football's aristocracy. Juninho, unstoppable! Qui s'enfonce, Benzema s'est retourné. La frappe de Benzema! Et le but! Formidable enchaînement! Karim Benzema! But after 11 games this season, they're bottom of the table. Their world famous pool of academy talent seems to have dried up. And after losing one of the most influential football executives of this century, could a genuine legacy club soon be a second division side? I'm Ayo Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Okay, so Leon are up next. This is part four of the Athletics Crisis Club series, examining the financial state of five European football clubs all week. So today I'm joined one last time by the Athletics senior football news reporter Matt Slater and Adam Crafton is in the studio as well. We'll also hear from German football writer Raphael Hunningstein a little later on on the show on our fifth club, Hertha Berlin. I mean, they've gone beyond being in crisis to just being perpetually... Terrible, really. The odd good spell disrupting the misery. Right. Let's start with Leon. Adam, in short, if you can, why are Leon on our list? A difficult one to do in short, um, but that's why we have the podcast to try and (laughs) to hopefully explain it. The headline is that they are, you know, one of the most famous clubs in France and they are bottom of the league, which is a pretty pretty difficult thing to, to achieve, really, for a club of the size of Leon. You know, you're, you may be used to a team starting four or five games slowly. You know, if you think of the best of Leon, then you think of a side that won the league seven times in a row at the turn of the century, a club that has recruited really well, a club that has sold really well traditionally, a club that built a new stadium that opened in 2015-16, 59,000-seater stadium. Next year at that stadium, they'll be hosting Taylor Swift and they'll have Coldplay and they've just had a few games at the Rugby World Cup and they'll have the Six Nations and uh, they'll be doing some football in the Paris Olympics uh, in Lyon. So you've got all the ingredients there in theory for Lyon actually to be a really successful club, but they're not there 
at the moment. And there's a big background to all of this, which is which kind of merges probably so much of what you've spoken about this week already, which is the challenges of being a club that builds a new stadium and how paying for that has an influence down the line in terms of your ability to compete, particularly when you're competing with clubs that have been backed like Paris Saint-Germain or clubs that have been backed like Monaco with uh, Russian investment over the past decade or so as well. You then bring into it a change of ownership or a change of control between what you would kind of consider the real old school of ownership, which is one guy, Mr. President, Jean-Michel Aulas, who was so... If you think of the most famous European football executives of the early part of the 21st century, this guy was amongst the main men, right? You had, was it the G, was it, I get mixed G14. up. G14. G14, I get mixed mm. up, G7, G12, G14. <laughs> you had the G14, which was like one of the original exclusive groups of football executives, which he was at the top of. That was before you had like the European Club Association and things like that. Lyon were a club you'd always see in the Champions League. This, but... The idea was you had this guy who'd taken over in 1986, 87, and he'd been there 30, over 35 years. And he was Mr. Leon. For better and worse, he was the owner. You knew what the focus was. You then have a takeover. That takeover, in theory, was actually quite a good idea. You had a US investor, uh, John Texter, which was what what we refer to as these multi-club models. So you had Leon coming in under a group called Eagle Football Holdings, and he's got a stake in Crystal Palace, but it's not a majority stake. He's got majority control of Botafogo in Brazil. You've got Molenbeek in Belgium, who since he's taken over there, they've been promoted. Botafogo have been in a title race in Brazil. And if you've not paid attention to that race, it's worth tuning in because it's one of the most amazing title races you'll see. And he he went into Leon, and the idea was that it builds out that portfolio. So I suppose in his ideal, you'd have at the top of this tree, Crystal Palace and Leon, potentially as an English club and a French club that can trade players of real high value, players that you know you can move around for big money. And then you can develop talent in Brazil and move them into the European market. They can get those difficult work permits in Belgium, perhaps, if you're bringing them from Brazil that are that are far more difficult post Brexit. I'm aware this is a really long answer, so cut in. I'm just at waiting. Any point, I'm just waiting to at, at any, at any point you want. Go, Do you know what? Can we sub this down? <laughs> yeah. So the idea is all of those different clubs could dovetail nicely. It could help Molenbeek because they could get a player before they when they're still attainable and then they could sell them on for big value. You could move them from Belgium to Lyon to help grow that value before they then get a move to the Premier League. So so those were some of the synergies that were aimed at. And actually the initial idea was Jean-Michel Aulard, as this guy who has been there for a very, very long time, would actually stay. He would basically on a management contract for a few years and effectively carry on running the club. The problem's been the new guy and the old guy have fallen out. Pretty spectacularly. Um, so that's probably a good point for you to jump in with any questions we've got so far. <laughs> but mean, you asked that, how we've well, got there. And that's, it, it, and that's before we even get into COVID and French it, it, media well, that, rights. That, that, that's everything. where I usually bring Matt in. Um, the COVID question, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, how has COVID affected Leon in particular? And I guess let, let's have a little roundup of how it affected the French league in general. I think it is quite interesting to compare them to the clubs that have come before. And, and as Adam has explained, they tick a lot of the right boxes. 
they, they shouldn't be here. So if you compare them, let's say, to, to Everton, Barca and Inter, all those clubs have stadium projects ongoing. Leon did it. They've had success. Okay, look, sport is cyclical, as we've already discussed on the on the series in the series, and they're in a you know they're in a down moment. They get a lot right in terms of player development. They have got a fantastic women's team. They even did the things that we've all talked about again on this podcast, thinking about footfall and sweating your asset and getting people through the door, and you know so you don't just use your stadium twenty five times a year. You use it every day. So they built an arena, right, to bring more events, more sport. So they've done loads right. So why are they on the list? They were stretched. The stadium stretched them. They probably were stretched on the playing budget as well. And then these two big external shocks happen. It's always, it's always the external shock. And it's all, and what sort of state were you in as you went into this shock? You know, what was your plan B? What was your plan C? This is really something that we can say about all French football. COVID was bad. They shut down. They didn't restart. They paid a big, you know, relatively speaking, they paid a big broadcaster rebate. And then they were in a hurry to start a new broadcast contract. And I think this is something that really hurt Leon. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Ayo Akinwalere. So this is where we get into this whole, again, this is something we've, we've briefly touched upon, you know, the value of rights and, you know, everyone's trying to compete with the Premier League. The French TV deal did this massive blockbuster deal with a company called Media Pro, a completely untried and tested company outside of Spain where they have a track record and they have customers and people knew who they were and they knew what they were doing. Media Pro, stuff full of Chinese money, which reminds everybody of the inter-conversation yeah. we were having, the Chinese yes, football boom. So it all ties together. Media Pro were going to try and expand into other markets. And France was the one they really went for. And I remember they had this big push to get to a billion euros per season. And they went with Media Pro, which meant turning their backs on their long-term partner, the Sky Sports, if you like, of French media landscape, Canal Plus. Long story short, it was a disaster. The whole thing unraveled in the most ludicrous fashion within months. And it meant that French TV, all these French clubs, and Leon had pushed the deal, by the way, were left with half the money they thought they were getting through the door during COVID. So whereas the English league paused and then restarted and finished the season, what happened in France was that I think basically the government said, you're not coming back. And Leon were very unhappy about this. And why were they unhappy about this? Well, mostly because they were seventh in the table. And they probably thought, you know, maybe seven or eight to 10 games left. We, we haven't not been in Europe since 1997 at that point. We'll find a way to get in because that's, you know, that's how it tends to work. The big clubs tend to get there in the end by hook or by crook. So it stopped and the points per game formula had them finishing seventh. So it meant they were outside Europe for the first time in over 20 years. And since then, actually, in the three full seasons, I think since they've, fought, they've been out of Europe for two of those three years. Now, you can get away with it once, maybe twice. Once it becomes three years, when you don't have that brilliant broadcast deal domestically or internationally anymore, you're in trouble because then you're really just left with match day revenue. It's your third budgetary shock then, isn't it? It's, it's COVID. It was the TV deal being not as good as we thought it was going to be. And we've missed Europe. Something that we have always budgeted for. Yeah. And, and the fourth one is the only other way you can smart your way out of that is by being amazing on player trading. 
Yeah. And that's something Leon had been really good at, right? If Even if you look at, I think, between 2015 and 22, only four clubs in Europe made more money from players they had trained through their academy than Leon. You can go through a list of, of famous names that have come through Leon. Players like uh, Lacazette, Umtiti, uh, Hatem Benoff, Anthony Martial, a lot of players. Benzema. That, Benzema. And as a result of that, they'd been able to not only succeed for quite a long time, but quite often by making money as well. I mean, even in the past three years, I think they've brought in 200 million more or so than they've actually spent in the transfer market. Now, that's that's not a problem as long as you're doing well. I think now fans are looking at that and thinking, should we be spending a bit more of mm-hmm. what we're bringing in? Uh, they're going to have to. Yeah. yeah. And also what they did start to let slip on was a bit like Daniel Levy had always been top, being described as this tough negotiator, this guy that always gets a good deal when he's selling. I think that was the perception in France of Jean-Michel Aula. And what you had start to happen were a few misjudgments. Back across, bitten out by the goalkeeper. And Hussamawa equalises for Lyon. A player like, do you remember Hussein Aul? I think I pronounced that right. I think it's supposed to be going to Arsenal or there were links Midfielder, anyway, yeah, linked to Arsenal, Spurs. I remember writing transfer stories about interest in him. Mm. You were talking 50 million or so at the time. He ended up leaving on a free because Leon really dug in. They thought that he would continue to progress at Leon, And actually what happened was changes of managers. He went out of favour. All of a sudden, he didn't want to extend a contract. He ends up leaving for free. It can happen. But when your margins are so tight and relying on that revenue, it becomes a problem. And it wasn't only him. You had Memphis Depay, yeah, yeah. a little bit similar situation. You had Moussa Dembele, who's now a Aletifak, who could have gone for decent money at that time. Even though in that period, they still did some really good deals. Bruno Guimaraes, who ended up at Newcastle, 40-odd million. Lucas Paquetar signed for about 5 million from Milan and ends up going to West Ham for 40-odd million, even more, I think, 50 million. And I think there probably would have been a sell-on if he'd gone to City in the summer, which would have helped. So it's not as simple as like, you know, they've messed up everything because they've not. They've been unlucky in some senses. There's been different circumstances. And then the other problem they had last summer, which maybe explains how they've started this season, and this isn't only the fact that you still had pretty outdated coach in Laurent Blanc starting the season, they were also restricted in what they were able to do in the transfer market by essentially it's the French DNCG, which is like the financial watchdog, which you have to submit to, I think, every kind of Christmas and before the summer ahead of the January summer transfer windows so that you have an idea of what you're going to be allowed to spend. And the idea of it is really good. The idea is it protects clubs from doing a Portsmouth, from overspending, from going beyond their means. It's probably edging towards over-regulation relative to what we see in the English game, I would say. But it's there to protect clubs. And they took issue with the financial plans that were being presented by Leon last year, which meant that last summer, Leon weren't able to spend very much. So they ended up doing free transfers, loans, and some pretty weak deals. Yeah, and this this DNCG, this, it's a nice little um, halfway house, really, between what we were talking about with uh, Barcelona on Tuesday uh, in terms of their long-running battle with La Liga's very um, tough and um, bespoke budget system where each club is basically handed a budget based on, you know, you've got too much debt, what, what are you bringing through the door? I think the French system is, isn't as strict as that, but it's equally more strict than the very laissez-faire approach that 
um, we were talking about on Monday with Everton, where it's always retrospective. Again, with this change of control from, you know, Monsieur President, someone who sat on French committees for ages and ages, everybody knew him, to this, you know, slightly upstart American fella walking through the door. The previous set of American owners in the French League hadn't gone particularly well. And Texter, rightly or wrongly, feels that he's being held to a higher standard than most. First of all, you seem like a very nice woman, but that is honestly the... I know you have to ask the question. Uh, it's a comical question. Uh, this team is not at risk of relegation. Teams that get relegated in any country... But there's a little bit of anti-Americanism there. I'm not sure. There certainly probably is a little bit of anti-John Texter going, going mm -hmm. on here because he can be a tiny bit brash. And has he managed that relationship with Olas? Very well. No, he hasn't. Is it all his fault? No. Is there a case here of seller's remorse? 100%. Did Texter pay maybe a little bit too much? Yeah, probably. So, you know, there is, there's a sort of personal element to this story. And then there is this sort of institutional angle as well with, you know, how, how French clubs have to interact with their French with the sorry, with their financial fair play regulator. The 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 texter the texter all thing is is fascinating because it is old meets new, and it was a good it was a good idea, right? Like you get a new guy in, but you let the old guy kind of carry on taking care of things. Like I think they both meant well mm -hmm. to a certain extent, but it's a bit like someone buying a house but letting you carry on living in the spare room, and then getting really offended when you start changing the furniture around, and and that's. That's where I don't have that much sympathy, to be honest. It got pretty nasty in the summer. Mm. Um, not, yeah, nasty, just a bit far, a bit shambolic, really. I think he's, he's to, done personally well out of this. Let's not forget. Yeah, right. And I think supporters in the summer. So there was a press conference. I think that texter kind of suggested that um, there'd been a previous warning from the DNCG to to Leon, and that he didn't know about this when he acquired the club. You then had texter through his group coming out and saying, you know, if he's saying that, it's not true. And then there's a defamation case. And that's messy. I mean, this guy, this guy Aulas, he's not disappeared. He's still got a president's box. Mm -hmm. He's still getting, going to games. And it's a bit like when Wenger left Arsenal, right? As soon as a legend like this leaves, the memory of them becomes pretty good, right? Because you start thinking of, oh, look at everything they did for mm -hmm. Leon. Took over when they were second division, indebted. We were winning leagues with him. Now we're bottom of the league. And actually, the reality is a bit like late Wenger, late Olas wasn't very good, which probably helps the new head coach, uh, Fabio Grosso, who's come in, because I think the fans now are almost thinking he's got it tough. You know, dealing with these two people, going at each other all the time in public, he needs to keep us up. So we as a fan base are going to get behind him. And just one point on the fan base, I mean, you don't mess around with the ultras in Lyon, lightly. They, I think they lost against PSG 4-1 early in the season, uh, after which Laurent Blanc was sacked. One of the fans got a megaphone, and you have this extraordinary video, go and find it online, where one of the ultras is basically just telling the players to pull their socks up and saying they're not putting a shift in, saying, you know, other players have glorified this shirt, you're going to be uh, smearing it or tarnishing it. I mean, it's amazing theatre to watch, but it's also... I can't imagine going out at Lyon as a player right now for a home game and feeling particularly comfortable around it. I really appreciate you uh, wrapping that up very quickly, Adam. really appreciate that. Um, but real <laughs> talk, um, the question is, how do they get out, out of this mess? They're sitting bottom of, you know, League 1 
um, no European football. And also, I, I, you mentioned it earlier, the academy. I mean, is there a way out? I know they sell, they, they sold Bradley Bacola to um, PSG very recently, and the president naturally was not happy. That was key Leon talent. But is there any is there any pickings from the talent, um, the youngsters that they can rely on or maybe build on for the future? Yeah, I, th- I think one of the problems they've got is they are, you know, they're running out of players to sell. I think what will help is because they sold a couple of players in the summer and you also got Malo Gusto went to Chelsea for 30 odd million. I think the feeling is they're selling players quicker than they would have done previously. I think that's one of the concerns because they've kind of had to, to balance the books being out of European competition. Mm-hmm. Because of who they sold in the summer, they should be able to have a better deal with the DNCG for January. And I think Texter's intention is to invest. I think he recognizes that he probably got it wrong in terms of the timing around keeping Laurent Blanc as long as he did, in terms of overestimating perhaps how good this squad is. More broadly, you know, one of the thing one of the things Matt mentioned, which I should have mentioned at the top as well, is I mean, Leon's women's team has been a jewel in the crown in many sense. When Leon's men's team stopped winning, you had this women's team that was again another example of Leon doing things right. Yeah, being right? forward thinking. Being forward thinking, yeah. getting on that curve, winning a load of Champions Leagues. And even in, you know, that's not gone away. I think they won 2022 mm-hmm. as well, right? But what is happening now, because there is, a, there is, I think, around 450 million or so worth of debt. And the way around that appears to be selling the arena that Matt mentioned. So you've got this arena that they built, a multi-purpose sports and entertainment by the stadium. So they're going to sell that, which will help. Selling, doing a joint venture with the women's team, with a US investor called Michelle Kang. Um, that's a great name. Isn't yes, it? Yeah. Michelle Kang. Michelle yeah. Kang, who is also uh, involved with the Washington Spirit in the NWSL in the States. So as a result of that, Leon are also going to have to sell OL Reign, which they acquired a few years ago because you can't have two teams in the same league in the States. So they're going to raise a bit of money that way. And then there's also a bond issue if you want to explain that. Yeah, well, look, so as uh, they're selling assets, right? So again, this we're going back to the Barcelona conversation, aren't we? How do you get out of it? We have to sell stuff. So they're selling stuff. but And and I think some of the criticism of Texter is that it looks like a fire sale. What what he will say is that, no, this is all planned and strategic. And, and there is some truth in that, in that he was talking about this stuff right from the outset. So the Leon women's team story is interesting. He genuinely sees this as a as a good, clever, positive thing to do. It's going to be a joint venture with this business partner called Michelle Kang, who is a real champion of women's soccer in the States. So that was planned. Now, the timing and the perception, though, is the problem. It does look like he is flogging something that used to be good at Leon. The OL Reign team, they're based in Seattle. That's that's you could argue is a sort of sensible move it, it was a non-core probably a bit of a distraction if they can get a good price for it because now's a good time to sell you know women's soccer franchises in the states great uh, they're actually using the same the same bank rain that sold the sold chelsea and um you know trying to sell manchester united so you know again there are parallels with other things we've talked about i think the arena is probably a slightly more interesting one. It probably is a bit more of a, ah, right, we've got a bigger hole to fill here than I thought. In that that arena, I do remember when it was built, and I remember 
you know, a couple of consultants telling me that I think they'd actually worked on the projects. That's exactly the type of thing that all forward thinking uh, football clubs should be doing. Um, you know, really kind of like trying to trying to sort of create a kind of walled garden around your club, trying to get people involved, trying to keep them there longer. That well, they're selling it. And I think what Texter would say is, look, we're having a look at the forward projections. We think it will bring this much in over the next 25 years. I think we can sell it now for pretty much the same amount and hand it over to someone else. It's all good. Who knows, right? We're not looking at the books. He tells me, he tells people it's a good deal. We, we shall see. I, th I think the controversy with that is where does that money from the arena yeah. go? Um, I know mm. there's been some reporting, I think, on Bloomberg Financial Times saying, some of it may go into the Eagle Football Group, this multi-club yeah. funding acad sort of academies around. There's one in Africa, one I think in the it States. Will. I think it will. He wants. So again, this this is that kind of clash of um, personality, but also clash of strategy. You know, Leon have gone from being the apple of someone's eye, the most important thing in a man's world, and um, they are now an important thing in a group's world. But where they sit in that group's pecking order isn't clear. And this is where I, I, I often come back to any conversation about a multi-club is you have to be totally clear about what you're trying to do. So the ones that appear to work quite well are ones that are clearly defined strategies and clearly defined pecking orders. So if you think about Red Bull, right? So Red Bull, you've got these two teams, Leipzig and Salzburg. They, you know, Leipzig's probably the more important one because they're in the bigger league, but Salzburg is the sort of one that's probably closest to Red Bull's heart. But let's be honest, the most important thing in that group is Red Bull, the energy drink. It is all about selling energy drinks, the way they play football, their whole messaging, you know, and everyone is working to that, to that end. The football kind of work, works quite nicely. City Football Group, totally obvious and clear who's in charge. It works. But you look at Eagle Football Group, and there's a couple others, you know, 777, of course, where I'm not sure what the plan is. You know, they, they talk a really good game about synergies and cutting costs and sharing best practice and creating a kind of player trading model. Yeah, it's great. It's like a sort of, you know, a PhD thesis. It's brilliant. Go on, then prove it. Because otherwise it looks like you've just running, instead of running one club, which is really, really hard and not maybe doing very well at it, you're running five, six, seven, eight clubs and not doing very well at it. And you are just compounding problems so that's you know the theory that you know the jury's very much out on on eagle football and leon is sort of sitting in the middle of this experiment in the same way that everton may well sit in the middle of an experiment and that's again an uneasiness about leon's situation but also dare i say you have to be honest a possible way out so to you know to turn it around these sales these asset sales could get them out they're going to refinance debt that's great that's sensible and you know this multi-club model might just work we shall see it did help them in the summer. I mean, the one thing Leon fans may have seen as a positive in the summer when you had these limits on the transfer market, something they were able to do, which some people will look at and think it's pretty controversial. Other people will say it was pretty clever in the circumstances. Molenbeek, Belgian team, just being promoted from the second Belgian division. Buy a player for 25 million euros from uh, FC Norgeland, Ernest Neumar, sort of 20-year-old uh, wide player he goes to Molenbeek and immediately goes on loan to Leon right so it was a player that Leon wanted but they couldn't afford to buy him because of the restrictions so you get him into a different club within Eagle and then immediately get him on loan a lot of clubs looked at that and were like 
shit, we need to change the rules, right? Because yeah. this, is an, this is a way, they would say, of getting around financial restrictions and having an advantage that we don't have unless we're in a multi-club model. The flip side of that is we are getting towards a stage where pretty much every club in France or Belgium is part of a multi-club model, so maybe it kind of just works. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, Rafa, I mean, look, we're talking about clubs in crisis, um, or crisis clubs, I should say. We need a German perspective on this. Hertha Berlin. I mean, reading a piece you dropped very recently, I mean, this is a really fascinating club. High drama, not in the Bundesliga anymore. How has it all unfolded for Hertha Berlin? Uh, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I mean, they've gone beyond being in crisis to just being perpetually terrible, really. Um, the, the odd good spell disrupting the misery uh, rather than the other way around. Um, the problem I think that they've had historically is that they were on this island, West Berlin, in the middle of the GDR. And it wasn't a very particularly uh, wealthy area, Berlin, uh, up until reunification. So financially, they struggled throughout the post-war years and they were relegated and they were involved in some bribery scandals. And then they had a golden period uh, towards the turn of the century. And then they were relegated again twice. And then they had this big idea in the, uh, in the tens uh, after 2013, to become this startup club, to um, transform the image from being, uh, yeah, a pretty uh, less than mediocre and uh, always prone to scandals, kind of nothingness, to being sexy and cool like Berlin, the city. And uh, the problem was that they took some external money on for that. And uh, it worked for a time, but as often is the case with these startups, you run out of money eventually. And that's where they are at the moment. Uh, there's some new money coming in, but whether that will change their fortunes, I'm extremely doubtful. I think what was interesting about looking down the line of things was the amount of managers that have come in and out of Hertha Berlin. I mean, you talk about instability, Jürgen Klinsmann. I mean, how long did he last for? 76 days. Well, I mean, they, they would have liked to keep him a bit longer, but he decided he, he wanted to leave and he left from one moment to the next, leaving them completely in the in the ditch with um, relegation fight uh, being, being on the cards. And since then, um, there's been more and more changes and sporting directors have come and gone. Presidents have come and gone. Financial officers have come and gone. It's a completely different hat now than it was only one and a half years ago. 
but whether these new people are necessarily better placed to to right the wrongs of the past and to take her to forward her, I'm not so sure. They've they've tried to completely once again reinvent themselves and say, you know, enough of these delusions of grandeur, enough of this trying to become a, a super club. Uh, let's go and do sort of a herter thing, having former players involved, uh, looking at uh, youth football, looking to promote within, looking to live within our means. And it's all a very noble undertaking, but it's yet to deliver results because it looks as if they won't be going up next year. And another season in Bundesliga 2 is just going to make their finances even worse. Mm. One of the things we've, we found in correlation with our clubs in crisis is that COVID massively uh, was a was a really interesting time for for football, you know, across Europe. What was the Germans' perspective on this? How did COVID affect already uh, dwindling team? Yeah, COVID was a massive hit for all the Bundesliga clubs because they don't um, tend to have external money that they can call upon to tidy them over, which why, which why, which was why we saw huge pressure for the league to restart, and they were the first major league to restart worldwide in May of twenty twenty. With Hertha, it was, a, it was a real double whammy because they had just taken on some debt to buy back some shares that they had sold to KKR, a US private equity group. So in order to get more money in, they wanted to buy back their shares and then sell the shares again to, to another investor, which they did. Um, Lars Windhorst, London-based financier coming in. The problem is that they took on debt to make that happen. So the new money that came in that was supposed to really kickstart them, a lot of it was squandered on players that didn't have success. And then a lot of it was used to service the debt that they um, amassed through A, buying back uh, the shares and making up for the losses, huge losses during COVID. What was supposed to be this transformative investment amounted to very little and didn't really change the equation. Uh, and if anything, um, down the line, made it harder for them to recover financially. What have Triple Seven Partners got to do with all of this? Because, you know, we know they're trying to buy Everton, which we covered on, on Monday. Yeah, so 777 took over the shares from Lars Windhorst uh, to become um, majority owners in the club subsidiary. The way that things are organized in Germany is that you cannot dire- directly invest into the club, but you can dire- invest into the football company that is owned by the club ultimately yeah we're yet to see whether that's going to have a positive effect because most of the money that they've put in has of course gone to the former owner of the shares it's not money that directly comes into the club uh, they've promised to invest money into the club as well to help with uh, some of the, the debt to help with the, this uh, course of of cost saving that they've embarked upon and they have made some progress you know a team that cost 80 million euros to run just in terms of wages and transfer fees, amortization fees last year is only down down to 30 now, they will still lose a lot of money. Uh, their mm. own predictions suggest that they will lose up to 64 million euros this year as they have to grapple with reduced income from uh, being in Bundesliga 2. You know, TV rights are, are not comparable. The parachute payments that we see in the Premier League, uh, we don't really have them to the same extent in the Bundesliga. So the, the fall is much steeper. And they have to recover from that while at the same time trying to build a team that can take them back up again. 
I can't help but think very different situations, but Union Berlin are sitting at the bottom of uh, the Bundesliga at this moment in time. What is it with Berlin clubs <laughs> and coming up and down of the Bundesliga? Come on, what's going on? This is a cool city. This is where the hipsters are. You need a club that can really show the pizzazz that Berlin has to offer. I mean, Union's troubles are harder to explain because they've been the exact opposite of Hertha since going up five years ago. They've been super successful in Europe three times, even in the Champions League this season. But of course, the results have been very poor. They got rid of their manager, Us Fischer, and uh, it's looking quite grim at the moment. But a lot of people expect that to be a blip because they are ex extremely well run, unlike Hertha. Uh, they are embarking on a modernization uh, project for the stadium. Uh, the team is, is pretty decent. Uh, we just have to hope that uh, with new management coming in, at the moment they have a caretaker manager who I don't think is going to last that long, they will find that winning formula again. Otherwise, they'll be joining Hertha next year in Bundesliga too, which will bring back the derby. Uh, but that's probably not what, what both clubs want at this point. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolev. This multi-club ownership, and you know, we've just seen on Tuesday news that Premier League clubs have voted to block a, a temporary ban on, on loaning players. Is this the future? Is there any regulation that can take place? Or have UEFA missed the boat on this? Um, Matt, we'll start with you on this. Well, it's it's the present. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it's just exploded as a as a concept have UEFA missed the boat? Possibly. You know, they, they are trying hard. I think they're scrambling, really, to sort of kind of fix problems as they pop up when they possibly, you know, it's all, it's all we can all be really hind, uh, wise in hindsight, can't we? But if you go back to that kind of original Red Bull case, or even before that, when the first rules on multi-club, if you like, though people weren't referring to it in those terms back then, was ENIC, um, when that was, um, you know, the people that ended up at Tottenham. You know they had a they had stakes in in various clubs across across Europe, and they were the, that was the first time UEFA started to think about it in terms of competitive integrity. So you know what happens if the same owner has various clubs in the same competition? You know I think we can all get our heads around that 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 is a potential integrity issue. So that's where we had this idea of control. You know you can't have control over more than one club in the same competition, and you know the next big case was Red Bull, where both Leipzig and, and Salzburg were eventually allowed to play in Europe. And it, it required this most ludicrous piece of accountancy and governance footwork to, um, to sort of distance the two clubs, 
you know, RB, Leipzig, Red Bull, Salzburg and separation and making sure that there weren't people that had worked for each other. Honestly, it was all a bit of a fudge. And that's where we're at, you know. And now, as more multi-club groups have popped up with, let's say, a clearer idea around player trading, we're now seeing the leagues, but also UEFA going, well, this is really tricky now. You're posing me problems that I hadn't thought of. I just thought about the integrity of my competitions. I'm now trying to think how on earth I apply financial fair play rules when you could be sharing sponsors, you can be sharing players, you can be tra- you know, loaning players to each other. You can be, do- you know, how, how on earth do I do this? How, you know, I have to benchmark so many more things now to get a fair market value than I ever assumed. I'm saying I, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of personalizing these organizations. And, and, and I think it is posing issues that no one predicted. It's also posing issues because some of these people are being pretty clever, right? Is Newcastle a multi-club model or not? Like, okay, the owners of Newcastle have invested in these four teams in Saudi. Do they consider themselves a multi-club model in the same way as a Red Bull or a Eagle? Not really. Even, you know, who's top of the Spanish league at the moment? Girona. Girona, Girona right? yeah. I think that's a 44% yeah, stake that, that, Man City, that uh, CFG have. That isn't, I suppose, the majority control, right? No, but it would be more. Again, we're kind of learning by precedent. So mm. we, had a, we had a whole spate of this in the summer where Aston Villa and uh, I can't remember the name of their club. Which one have they got a, a connection with in Portugal? Uh, it'll come back to me later. Uh, but Union saint Gilois and Brighton, and there was another link. There were three linked clubs that were going into UEFA competition. And they all had to either dilute their shareholding. So Villa diluted, the Villa's owners diluted down in the Portuguese clubs to about 30%. That appears to be sort of the level where UEFA are comfortable. But also get into an agreement, a kind of a, almost a promise that we won't trade players for a year or two. Yeah. Which is going to be, you know, if you look at Manchester United, who are about to do this deal with Jim Ratcliffe, who clearly has, Ineos have majority control of Nice, you're going to have a very odd situation where you have a, a minority stake, but sporting control. And it's going to be fascinating to see how that is worded in the official, because all we're going off at the moment are briefings and reports and speculation. How that is worded in the agreement that will be announced at some point um, over the next few years um, slash decades um, is going to be fascinating because it you know there's how many times have you read over the last six months Man United want to sign the Nice defender uh, Todibo right how does that work United didn't um, try and block um, the, uh, the those those kind of loans in that Premier League meeting this week so I don't know if that's an indication or they may just not have thought about it that much yet. I'm sure there I'm sure there would have been a conversation somewhere. So even if you don't have control or even if you don't have 30%, some of this can start to become really interesting. I think PSG and Braga's are that's, that's similar yeah, that's kind probably. of stake now, right? But they've been in, in European competition. So th- this is kind of on everyone's doorstep. And even those clubs that that aren't currently, I suppose, embroiled in it they'll have an eye on their potential exit strategies, right? And not closing down potential new owners down the line who may be really keen on multi-club models. And therefore, you don't want to bring stuff in that deters people from investing. A bit like you'll never get a rule 
that block that blocks state linked funds right from being involved in Premier League clubs being voted in by Premier League owners because that might be their way out for a West Ham or a Spurs or whatever in a few years who knows so those are the things those are some of the complications and challenging things that we always I think media and football fans think just deal with it and actually when you get into it there's just another issue that emerges every time you unpick it but just sort of bringing it back to to Leon and, and, and France you're absolutely right pretty much every single club I'd argue apart from PSG is sort of for sale and it's kind of for sale they will be for sale because they're very much the fifth of the five big leagues um, if they're not careful they're going to get replaced by someone like Portugal or maybe a merged Belgian Dutch league so they're there and their TV rights um, aren't that popular they don't there's just not much interest in them abroad it's a shame because actually if you watch the products it's pretty good it's certainly it's got this kind of reputation for being a very young league play a nice attacking football but for whatever reason it has struggled to get people outside of France and I would dare, dare I'd say enough people in France to really care enough to pay for it there is a sort of existential issue there for France and therefore Lyon because Lyon aren't PSG they need the French league to do well, to have any kind of chance of, you know, getting back to where they were when they were winning French titles. They also, I think at the moment, you have both the domestic and international rights are up for tender and they are struggling. Yeah. They are really struggling. I think there was some vague hope that you'd get someone like Apple come along and take all the rights a bit like they have with MLS globally. I don't think that's going to happen. They've kind of been bailed out by being for quite, for quite a long time. And they may do it again in the end. Who knows, right? But I think the priority, you know, in the lead up maybe to 22, that was all maybe a bit more of a priority to make sure we're looking after this league and still protecting it. I think now they're probably getting to the point where they get a load of grief quite a lot of the time. And I'm not sure they're as mad on it. And if they are as mad, if they are going to do it, I think they won't probably pay quite what, quite what clubs want them to. Um, so it does, and then and then you're going back to like begging Canal Plus, mm, right, to come back exactly. to the table. These yeah. guys that that are you that, upset that you've told upset? To leave. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, let's bring this back full circle. Then um, I, I'm just trying to figure out or get a sense of what we've really learned um, from these conversations about our crisis clubs, um, Matt, especially with COVID. And I keep coming back to it. I guess a lot of clubs struggled with COVID, but actually clubs that weren't run well struggled more and it was glaringly obvious when someone like COVID hit that there are a lot of clubs out there that really need to get their books in order. I think that's it. It's that black swan moment. And are you ready? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're having a, an inquiry about it in this country, aren't we? How ready were we? Um, and the countries that sort of got through it better were the ones that had a plan that also, you know, were, in, were just in better shape. They entered the crisis in bad shape. They were stretched. I'd argue there was a bit of bad luck for some of them. Never underestimate the impacts of luck in life, but certainly in business and sport. So I think that it's that. It's this this crisis came along, hurt all of them in different ways for different reasons. Be it you know they had a you know an amazing museum, or they were trying to build a stadium, or you know they relied on Chinese money or whatever it is. But they were they were not in great shape when this crisis happened. Simple as that. Then it brings me the question, and we were. 
thinking about this earlier is that, I mean, I, I felt a lot of clubs are just running really close <laughs> to the edge, whichever way you look at it. Which clubs, or the bigger clubs in Europe, I should say, would you think are the best run clubs in Europe, most sustainably run clubs in Europe? Just depends how you how you define well run, right? Like, are Man City going to go out of business? Well, not as long as the current ownership's in place, right? Like, and you know, but at the same time, they're facing 115 charges, mm. right? Mm. Is that a well run club? Mm. Arguably, they're very well run now, right? <laughs> and Was also, well you know, and, and how important is success on the field? Because this is sport, right? You know, we're not talking about supermarkets or. You know, we are talking about sport, so so winning presumably is part of part of your, you know how you how you assess this. So and even if you talk about you know we all talk about Brighton, right? Brilliantly run club. They've relied on a huge amount of owner investment, yeah, yeah. right? Mm. Yeah, they may get to, you know they'll get to a stage where they're sustainable as a club in the Premier League. Is that a well-run business? You'd say yeah, really, but also hugely reliant on external factors to make sure it can happen. Um, I don't think there is. You know, if if we were asked to sit down as a you know one of the big four consultants tomorrow to say this is how you run a football club and this is the perfect model, there's never one. It doesn't way. exist. There's never right? one way. Look, I if I was just sort of whilst Adam was talking there, I mean, I would probably throw maybe Real Madrid into the mix again because of that whole conversation we had around Barcelona. So many of the things that Barcelona got wrong, Real Madrid have got, if not right, they've got it considerably less wrong than Barca. And I, I think, you know, this is hard. I'm not, no one's ever suggesting this is easy. So I would possibly suggest Real would be a, an example of a well-run club. Liverpool. You know, they, they get plenty wrong. And Liverpool would be another one. You know, on-field success, um, a sustainable business. Um, the fabric of that club is clearly improved under that ownership. Their sort of status in the global game has clearly improved under that ownership. So I, would, I think, you know, Liverpool would have to be in the mix. I think Man City... Definitely a debate to be had because you cannot dispute the way that that club is run right now in terms of on-field success, in terms of what they do commercially, in terms of recruitment, youth development. But there's a massive but that I don't need to get into because we'll be, you know, another week on another week on Man City. I'm trying to think who else, who else, who else? Bayern Munich. Serial winners, but you could say kind of the model of German football helps them it does substantially does it that does. make doesn't mean that they're doing things wrong though you know when no. this is what i mean it's so you can pick one and you can find a fault but in terms of who's doing more right than wrong both on the pitch and off the pitch then yeah you know equally i'd say if man united had been in bayern munich's position for the last 15 years you know there's been years where bayern munich have, have made quite a few mistakes but they still win the league yeah right last season they were pretty poor by their, yeah, they tried not to win last they, year. Right, they did their best. <laughs> yeah, right. And you know they sat the chairman, didn't they? Basically, yeah. the day, the day they won the league. But because of the way German football is with the disparities, kind of means they can get away with it to a, to a broader extent. Um, sorry to Bayern Munich fans who I know are loyal listeners. Mm, I still think they're a pretty well-run club. I agree. Okay, so let's end on this. Hypothetically, if the Athletic gave both of you. $1 billion to invest in our crisis clubs. I'm talking Hertha Berlin, Inter Milan, Barcelona, Everton, Leon. Which one are you picking, Adam? I don't know if a billion's enough for Barcelona. 
to deal with all the <laughs> with all it, the problems. It's, well, it's, it's not. It's not, is it? But um, it would it would certainly be a start. It would, it would have an impact. Yeah, yeah. I think you take Barcelona, don't you? Imagine running Barcelona, but you can't because the bloody fans. <laughs> you could be president. You could, you, could be run, pre- you, could, you could run a nice campaign. Yeah, you could yeah. run a campaign. Yeah, um, some personal guarantees. I think Everton for a billion. If you've got a billion in your pocket, it'd be pretty good stuff. Yeah, if, if it's the buy total control of one. Yeah, I was just wondering because we we haven't really talked that much about Herta, but you know, but you could do Herta of the five, right? They're they're the sort of slightly unusual one in that. They don't really belong here in many ways in terms of like their track record. I was just looking at it. You know, they were a great club in the 20s and 30s, but the rest of their story is, you know, just being sort of a bit of a calamity and being a bit of, oh, you know, at times a bit of a laughing stock. And yet they are the biggest club in a major European city, a cool European city, in uh, the capital of Europe's largest economy. So I don't know. Do I, do I do I throw a billion at Herta and try and turn try and you know turn Herta into one of Europe's giants? Maybe bring the hipster back know. to Herta Berlin. Is that what I, you're saying? I, I was I was talking to a, a chief exec of a European club actually about this series a couple of weeks ago, and they were trying to guess which clubs would be on the list. And I think they basically got three of them pretty quickly. Yeah, um, I think Everton, Barcelona. Uh, Inter, Inter, yeah. Inter, yeah. The other one they mentioned was Schalke, um, yes, which is an amazing ah, story. Yes. They, yeah. they are just looking at the table, sixteenth in the second division, yeah, of an eighteen-team league in in Germany. I mean, that's a club that was in the Champions and League, and they have been good more recently. Yeah, you know, um, you know, Hertha have only had one season in in the Champions League, so you know, I don't think they are. Still, you should read Raf's piece. You definitely but. read. Yeah, he absolutely <laughs> explains. You know how there's, the, the, you know, Berlin's biggest biggest team are a shambles, and it's you know a long running shambles, and also really neatly ties in to so many of the other things we're talking about. You know, they're owned by Triple Seven, so therefore they're part of a multi club group. Um, there's governance issues. There's overspending. They've got this big old stadium that badly needs, you know, arguably knocking down, but certainly, you know revitalizing so so many of the other the other points that we touched upon uh, are in the in the herter story but um but let's do this again you know we've we've there's Honestly. definitely definitely other clubs we've left on the table you know there's room there's room next time next um, international series also also for any clubs who are offended by their description <laughs> as a crisis club because i'm sure they'll love that um they're welcome <laughs> a to come on this podcast yes. and talk about it Explain why um, they're not. Yeah. Explain why they're not. And if in two years' time they turn out to be very, very clever, we would also write about that. So um, definitely back from the brink. Back from the brink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's the next series. Just feeding us through. with bare material. All right. Thank you, Matt. Also, Adam, I really appreciate your time as well contributing to the podcast this week. The entire Clubs in Crisis series is available to read in form only on The Athletic. You can, of course, catch up with all of this week's episodes wherever you get your podcast from. Also, we still have that very special Black Friday offer of just $1 or £1 a month for 12 months running until Monday the 27th. So head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod to get on that. Remember to rate and review us as well. Thank you all for listening. Adam Leventhal is back tomorrow to preview the return of the Premier League. Can't wait. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark, with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead.
The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.